One of the many things that Christians of all backgrounds have in common is worship. From even the earliest days of church history, we have records of Christians gathering on Sundays and singing hymns to Christ. As common as this is, each denomination approaches worship differently, and many of us don't reflect much on what's actually happening when we gather together on Sundays. So today we're talking with our friend Josh Bales. Josh is an Episcopal priest at the Cathedral of St. Luke in Orlando. He's a recording artist, and over the years, he's led worship in Baptist, Presbyterian, and Anglican churches. Josh and I talk about those experiences, liturgy, worship, and his most recent release. It's a great conversation, and I think you'll find it helpful as you consider what it means to worship God well. I'm Travis Lowe, and this is The Stone Table. Josh, thanks for sitting down with us to have this conversation. And I know over the last year or so, I've gotten the chance to know you just being at the cathedral in Orlando on Sunday nights. But for many of the people who are listening to this podcast, all that they're really going to know about you is the sermon that you're getting ready to preach tonight. So for those who don't really know much about you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you got involved in music? Absolutely. Um, So I grew up in uh, a fairly uh, tight Christian home, like it was a good Christian home when church was like our life, you know. And um, when I was a teenager, uh, middle school, actually, we the trend was like worship bands were just like Lord, I lift your name on high was a hot song. It was the anthem. Yeah, (laughs) right. it was our anthem. So, uh, so I sort of, sort of started leading worship for my youth group, which happened to be kind of a large group. It just so happened that that became like a, not only just a passion of mine, but like I got lots of reps, you know, every, so that's, that's how I got into music. I mean, my mom made me and my uh, siblings take piano lessons. So there was that piece of it. But in terms of the ministry part of it, it was, it feels like I started leading worship at age 14 and now I'm 30 seven and i don't think i've i think i've missed very few sundays wow and 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 that includes all the various traditions that i've been a part of so yeah so for you getting into music in general was it was mostly to lead worship that was the avenue that you came into music well so let me let me let me backtrack a little bit and say when i was 10 and i and i had to take piano lessons i immediately started writing songs wow so that that wasn't something I planned. I just was wanting to like create, you yeah. Know? But I didn't. I wasn't into music before that, and it, so so I was writing songs about. I was writing love songs, you know, at ten years old. Awesome. All the heartbreak I had experienced <laughs> from age zero to ten. Um. So so there there was already that, and 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 so it was a combo. It was like songwriting and creating and whatever, and then worship leading, kind of. And, and and honestly, those two things have never left me i mean as particular passions i also don't see them as being one i see them as fairly separate songwriting is kind of one thing and worship leading is kind of a different thing it for for me it's not for everybody but it is for me gotcha so you you grew up in was it alabama you said hmm. chattanooga tennessee chattanooga tennessee and so eventually you moved from chattanooga to orlando because yes. you went to seminary in orlando at rts so Let's talk a little bit about that process. What was it that drew you to seminary to study theology? That is, so that's completely connected to the worship leading stuff yeah. for me because the more I led worship in my youth group and then, and then in, I went to a small Christian school called Bryan College in Tennessee, which was kind of, I mean, this is an 
it was a great academic school, but it was it felt like a large youth group. Okay, and it was, and, and I mean that in the best way. Like it was so much fun. Six hundred. It was very small. Six hundred people, but I led worship every week there, and the and I majored in Bible. So the more I learned about the scriptures, the more I learned about leading worship. It just got the reps in. The more I realized, like, wow, I need some theological training. And then just a, like any time I would read a cursory essay on worship history, it was like, whoa, this is this is a little bit different from what uh, I was doing with Lord, I lift your name on high and so on and so forth. But so it was it was worship leading that drove you to study theology, yes. which yes. Is, is is really incredible in a lot of ways, because I don't know how common that is. Uh-huh. You know, most most worship leaders, they they're content with sort of farming out the theological part of their job to their pastors. Uh, but for you, you thought, man, I need to be trained in theology to be a better worship leader. That is so, man, it's, it's, it's it is weird that you're saying that right now, because in my current tradition as an Episcopal Anglican priest, one of the phrases that we use is lex orandi, lex credendi. Hmm. I've never and, heard it. So can you so the, unpack the, it? Um, the, it's the rule of prayer is the rule of faith. So out of the church's prayer, which worship like eucharist prayer worship um out of that came the rule of the credo you mentioned that you're currently in the episcopal church now part of the anglican communion i know that you didn't start there but you've kind of moved through a couple different traditions so can you talk a little bit about your journey through some of the different traditions in christianity and and maybe even talk about what did you learn at each step, what did you feel like each of these traditions did well that you grew in your knowledge of worship leading through? Yes, that man, I, I, first of all, I love that question because it gives me a chance to like say thank you to Jesus for his providence in my life and and putting me it. Well, first of all, and letting me be in a Christian family, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and like, I feel a great deal of joy when I look back at all the different iterations of the faith that I've been able to be a part of. I mean, I definitely have a little baggage from from, e- from each one, I would say. But it's been a, a long journey to consciously focus on the strengths that each expression of Christianity has brought to my to my love for Jesus. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it really it was, it's been a fun. It's been a fun journey. Immediately when you ask a question, I think of that book by Richard uh, Lentz called The Fabric of Theology, mm. where he talks about how all the different iterations, expressions of traditions of Christianity are like patches in a quilt. And together they all form the whole, this beautiful mosaic looking looking piece of fabric. Um because they're all preserving something true or emphasizing something important about God. Yeah. One aspect of God. Yes. That, that maybe the others don't. So to, to the specific. So I grew up in, in a Southern Baptist church um, from zero to, to, to 11 or 12. Okay. From that, I learned piety. I learned warmth. I learned evangelism. I learned like it matters that, that people know that you love Jesus I learned a lot of Bible, yeah. thinking Awanas and so on, you know. We do Awana here at the right, church. Right, right, right. And those kids know more Bible oh than my gosh. I think I know. And it's my job to know the Bible. I learned scripture memory. I learned, now I did it because I wanted to go on the uh, water slide trip that we were going. But I nevertheless learned a lot of Bible verses. And my mom worked at the church. So we were there. I mean, we were there every day, you know. It, wow. was, it, was, it was awesome. 
um, at, at age, like, like young middle school, we went to like a Bible church, like a John MacArthur kind of, and the focus at that church was like expository Bible teaching more than anything else. Some of the folks that attended this church in Chattanooga were names that you might recognize, like K. Arthur was a part of our church. Precept Ministries, her inductive Bible study group was right down the street. So I spent lots of summers. at pre- I worked at Precept for a while. Cool. So inductive Bible study, expository, you know, you get the point. Spirosodiades, the Greek, I don't know if you've... Uh, I've you never heard of that about. before. He's, he did some word studies that D.A. Carson later picked on. But anyway... <laughs> um, is he that what ex- exegetical fallacies was about? Yes. He gets <laughs> okay. a shout out. He gets a shout out. Spiros does. So he was the target of that book. Yes. Then. Wow. Woodland Park Baptist Church. I'm really sorry. I but but I'm sorry that <laughs> if you guys read exegetical fallacies, you would know that he quotes Spiros and says, "Don't do this." Okay. That was to say that all of his work was a wash. Sure. Right? But anyways, so dude, I I kid you not. In my youth group, at, then so at this Bible church, when when it was testimony time. People would, young 13 or 14 would get up and say, you know, I was reflecting on how there are like three or four words for love. And I just want to talk about the word agape. And, and, and I've just really been struggling with eros lately instead of it. And it was like, <laughs> so that you was needed the, like, like freshman Greek to be able to even keep up. That is how, that's how intense it was. So there's a lot to be said for just emphasis on Bible was pretty powerful. And the word, the word, the word, the word, you know? Yeah, in a lot of ways, I'm sure that that gave you a greater, even just respect for the work that scripture does in the life of the church. Without uh, a doubt. The power of like good exegetical preaching. Yes. In many ways, I'm sure it was on display. Yes, every every Sunday. And the idea that, that there is so much gold to be mined in, in God's word, that was powerful. Just so you didn't stay there. No, didn't right. stay there. So after that, I went to went to college, and like a lot of people in nineteen ninety eight nine, and a few years before that, and later than that, right about then, John Piper was just on fire, and it was like this gateway drug for Reformed theology. Mm-hmm. Is that is that an okay way thing to say? I think I think that's fair. Right. So for so, most people, that's so growing up Baptist and and sort of dispensational and and. Bible expository, Bible kind of focused, Bible church, John MacArthurish, all that. Those were my peeps, you know, that's how, where I learned. And then it was like, whoa, I started seeing, reading names like Jonathan Edwards and just the concept of like an overarching story of the Bible, which you don't always get. I mean, now maybe this is a bad stereotype, but in a very, when you're narrowly focused on three verses in Paul for the entire fall semester, right? <laughs> you don't, you're not hearing like, you're not thinking Genesis to Revelation through and covenants and stuff like that. So reform theology, that hit me. And it hit me via the Baptist version of that. The, uh, the Piperian iteration yeah. of reform yeah. theology. Yeah. At the same time, I was uh, work, and I, so I'm in college reading some John Piper and all the people that he's quoting. I was also sneaking up to this Presbyterian church. Shame uh, on you. I shame, well, I did. The I Baptists was, are so disappointed I in you. I was brought into the office and reprimanded for that. <laughs> but it wasn't because they didn't like those Christians. It was just like, hey, you know, it doesn't really look that good. But my hunger for for the bigger story of the Bible and maybe for a little, something a little bit older. But more than that, the reason I was sneaking up to this church on Sunday nights after I would lead in our youth group or, or whatever college ministry was the worship. 
Hmm. So I go up to this Presbyterian church and it was big and it was old and it was, there's a lofty ceiling stones. There were occasionally some, like there were, there were some crosses around. That's crazy. Of Jesus. Perished I, know. I know. So, and then there was a liturgy. There was like a structure to the church, which I had never experienced. Hmm. And we would, we were saying things out loud. Hmm. Um, we were like, praying the same prayers that were written down and the prayers are so beautiful. I wanted to take them home. So that was a PCA church. And I stayed in the PCA from then until 2014. So that was over 10 years. Wow. Never expected or anticipated leaving the reformed tradition or the Presbyterian church of America and worked with lots of PCA churches after that plan to get ordained just took a left turn at some point, but so what, what led you from the PCA tradition into the Anglican tradition? Here's where the story kind of finally ends or comes to the present moment. Right at the same time that I was sneaking away in Tennessee to this Presbyterian church while serving at a Baptist Bible type church, I happened in on a Wednesday night to an Episcopal church in Tennessee and had never been there before. I looked it up on, online. I, I must have come across some Anglican resource. And I was like, ooh. What is this, you know, Book of Common Prayer, maybe, I'm not sure. So I go in on a Wednesday night, it's evening prayer, like the evening prayer service from the from the Book of Common Prayer, and it's me and the priest. And he was upset, I, I could tell, because I was the only one. And he wanted to go home. Yes, he wanted to go home. <laughs> and, and I was not of, of, from his congregation, and I did not know what to do with the liturgy. So he would like, you know, you're doing the liturgy parts and he would like say liturgy part and I wouldn't, I would not know what page we were on or whatever, (laughs) but man, it was so powerful. Hmm. That was very early on. That must've been like 2000, 2001. And so all the time that I actually worked as director of worship or kind of like an associate pastor role in PCA churches, I I was using the book of common prayer. I was, so I was using the Anglican worship resources in my PCA church context. And it was, it was fine. It was fine. Mm-hmm. But so, so that haunted me. Liturgy haunted me. Um, I remember that one of the other times that I went to the Episcopal church. So I kept going back. I would, that was in the other place I was sneaking. Were you to. always the only person there or did you no, eventually no, there, show there, up to there, a service there, with yeah. people? Yeah. Eventually this is a story that is coming to mind now. I showed up one time and it was, you know, I was the youngest person there. We got to the Nicene Creed. I, I forget which service it was, some Eucharistic service. And I was looking around me because I had never heard the Nicene Creed. Even in the Presbyterian tradition, you'd never heard? Um, not. No, this was before I was really like sucked into the PCA. Okay. So gotcha. this was early on or just before I took all the Anglican liturgy with me because I wasn't working in the, in, the, in the PCA at this point. I was still sneaking away. Um, to go there. And, and I started crying. Hmm. It was the, the something about the Nicene Creed is bizarre. And that's what a Baptist does. <laughs> like when a Baptist encounters the Nicene Creed, it's like all the emotion and the liturgy and the history and the theology. It feels like the beginning of a joke. Like Baptist walks into an Episcopal church. <laughs> that's right. And here's the, the Nicene Creed. And, and then there's a punchline. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's the punchline. Yeah. Baptist I, crying. That, I guess so. Uh, but I looked around me and I noticed that all these older Episcopalians, they had their eyes closed while I was crying because they had it memorized. Hmm. And so the weird contrast between these older folks who were, you could tell, I mean, they just lived a lot of life. They had this, like somehow they had internalized it. 
but for me it was brand new and I had been in the church since zero that I don't know what it was it was just so overwhelming and I wanted that I wanted Christian history like inside of me one of the things that I've been thinking about as you've been talking especially that last story my grandma and grandpa on my mom's side were both raised lifelong Episcopalians in the diocese that you're a part of my grandma towards the end of her life had dementia to the point that she couldn't remember really much of anything but the things that she did remember were the prayers from the liturgy mm-hmm. so you could you could recite the Nicene Creed with her you could recite the Lord's Prayer uh, you could recite the prayer of humble access mm-hmm. she knew all of that even when she couldn't remember the most basic things about her life mm-hmm. and so there is something about liturgy good liturgy yeah. when we spend a lifetime soaking in it that it kind of sows these things into us in a deeper way mm-hmm. than sort of a hodgepodge service that's different every week and yes. constantly changing things. Right. Absolutely. Yes and amen a thousand times over. So you, you've you led worship in Baptist world and Presbyterian world, now in Anglican world. What do you feel like each of these parts of the Christian tradition, what do you feel like each of them does well when it comes to worship? So maybe this is, these are just stereotypes, I don't know, but I would say my knee-jerk response is immediately the heart of uh, evangelical, Baptist evangelical piety, the heart of it. Like it's not real if it doesn't have the heart. It's not authentic if there's not emotion involved in some way. That's powerful. Yeah. The head from Reformed theology world that the sermon's 45 minutes in a kind of in a Presbyterian context for a reason is that's sort of a value they hold, you know? Hmm. And it really matters what we're saying and doing in worship, the regulative principle thing. So the head, and then I would, I mean, I don't want to, it's not an easy split, but when we get to Anglicanism, it's sort of like, you could choose a bunch of things. You could choose the body because the body's doing a bunch of like the sign of the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're kneeling and standing up all those jokes and worship about Episcopalians. Like they can't sit still. And, <laughs> um, even just like bowing before the cross. When you take communion up uh, well, taking communion, there's a physical part to that. Uh, that's a crucial essential part of the worship experience. So there's a body thing going on. Yeah, there's there's a lot more in terms of engaging the whole, the, the embodied nature of human beings. Right. Because a lot of the other traditions, it's sit and listen. Right. Uh, or maybe respond by singing. But what I do love about the Anglican tradition is you're kneeling, you're sitting, there's responsive readings. It's it's yeah. engaging the whole person. Yeah. It's like in growing up as a Baptist, like you got to feel or it's not authentic. And in the Presbyterian, my experience was you got to think or it's not authentic. And and now in Anglicanism, it's like you've got to you got to do like you've got to you've got to take and eat for this is my body, you know. Mm. Um, but but let's say let's say if, if I couldn't choose body, what would I say that the Anglicanism brings to the table? I feel like there are other things because I think mystery mm. is a big element to it. That we don't, we actually can't say all that's going on in in worship. Whatever it means that Jesus is present, Anglicans say we don't quite know. We just know that he's present, right, in the Eucharist. Yeah, so mystery, body, I mean, then you could go with history, because Anglican worship isn't so informed by history right, uh, or tradition. To be set free from all the baggage that I had around the word tradition or ritual or those have become very meaningful words to me now. So 
I feel like he could keep going. Sure. These are all the reasons I ended up, I think, in this place. So I know you talked about one of the great things about Anglicanism and probably even Eastern Orthodoxy too, is that they embrace the mysterious aspect of what's going on. I don't want you to forego the mystery, but there's, there's one thing that you said a couple months ago in worship at the cathedral. It was like pouring rain outside. You said, I'm glad you made it through the flood into the ark of this church. Yes. Uh, uh, uh. And then you said, in a lot of ways, worship is kind of like an ark. I don't know if that was like a passing comment or if you'd thought about that before you said it, but it got me thinking a lot just about how thoughtless we are when we come to worship. Mm -hmm. We just sort of show up and it happens to us rather than us thoughtfully stepping into worship. So what are some things that as we come to worship on a Sunday morning in whatever tradition we're a part of, what are some things that you think should be on our mind? Well, first of all, I got to give credit to Dean Reggie Kidd, my boss and yeah. friend and once uh, seminary professor, because uh, a number of years ago at uh, Easter Vigil, he preached a sermon about the cathedral is, oh, church worship is is the ark. You okay. know? In fact, it was kind of designed that way, even architecturally. But the theology of that, this is our refuge and the place wherein God saves us through the storm of life or whatever is, is a pretty powerful mm. metaphor for every time we gather for worship. If you come out, especially from like, there is such a thing as sacred space, mm-hmm. um, that this place would be holy and it's holy because Jesus is going to be present here in the bread and the wine and his people and the word and so on, then that sort of certainly becomes, that takes on a little bit more meaning than just, there's more weight there. We yeah. can worship anywhere because it's kind of like, well, not, not real. I mean, we, we can, of course, but yeah, something, something different happens in this space. When God's people gather together. Around his consecrated presence at the altar and so on. It is an ark and Jesus is the greater Noah. Anyways, beyond all that, yeah. So what are some ideas that should sort of, that we should be equipped with every time we come to worship uh, to help us get what's happening theologically and emotionally, relationally? Um, I think of the that great quote, which I'm going to not remember, but from Annie Dillard in Teaching a Stone to Talk, where she talks about how we all need to like, wear hard hats and life jackets when we come to worship, like mm-hmm. uh, because we're about to literally encounter the holy other of God, right? Mm. And we come in casually with coffee, which... I kind of wish we could do at the cathedral, but we do approach the Almighty from a bit of a of, of a casual place. We're flippant the, about the, it, right? Kind of. I mean, I mean, we're focusing on a way in a manger, the imminence of God, the nearness of God, right? The intimacy with God. But um, Annie Dillard's point is like we should be afraid. <laughs> we should be afraid of what we're doing, and then to be able to hold in our hands. This what we consider to be the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. We there's just, in no sense should we be flippant. Mm-hmm. We're about to go on a journey, and for this journey, we should be given hard hats and life preservers, uh, because we're about to be encountering something that is not from this world. Which can be really hard when you're standing next to someone and they're singing off key, or they smell bad, or the worship band sucks this day, or whatever it is. <laughs> Yeah. And yet, like, that is what's happening, you know? Like, through the sucky worship band, 
God, the almighty creator of heaven and earth is trying to reach us and speak to us and commune with us and all that. So it's, it's a wild kind of almost like the scriptures, you know, like fully divine, fully human. It's just like the, the overlap is everywhere. Mm. But, so worship as a completely sacred experience and a completely human experience that should be in our minds every single time. Mm. The messiness of trying to get to worship with our kids screaming and whatever in, in the minivan and yet showing up to the holy altar of God, the tension should never leave us. I, I, I don't think. I think that's a pretty good, pretty good starting point for most people just to consider what's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a great book called worship in the reality of God. And he talks about, for us, especially in modernity, God is somewhere out there. He's, we've almost so pushed God out there that when we come to worship, we can't recognize the fact that he's entirely imminent to where we are right now. Yeah. And so we are in a very literal way entering into the presence of the Holy One of Israel. And so he talks about how we've lost the sense of the reality of God's presence in worship, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that it's not there. Mm-hmm. And what we have to do is is recover our ability to see what's actually going on. Yes, like attune ourselves to where he's promised to be, mm-hmm. in, which is in worship. Yeah. Yeah. I thought of something else. I would Another difference about coming to worship and how to kind of be prepared for that is just to keep in mind that like we're not getting in our car and driving to a prayer closet by ourselves. It is with other people that we like or don't like or know or don't know or or, know or don't know yeah yeah Uh, of all ages of all shapes uh, of all backgrounds and cultures the whole thing but that's one thing that liturgy like spoke and responsive liturgy does really well is because our voices are now saying the same words Mm. so we're realizing that yeah we're, we're not alone in our prayer closet and if i worship with god's people and I don't have some kind of wonderful private experience for that hour and a half, that is completely okay. Mm-hmm. Because my duty or my my worship duty, my sacrifice of praise was actually just putting my body in the room with other human bodies and out of allegiance to God, like mm-hmm. doing the worship with them. Man, I mean, that, 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 that was not a concept that I was ever, that would not be okay uh, <laughs> growing up, you know? So we've talked about your experience kind of moving from tradition to tradition. And we've talked about a lot of the ways that you got involved in music and worship leading. And one of the things you do other than just leading worship at the cathedral is that you've put out records for a long time now. Mm -hmm. I know you've got at least three or four records that you've released Mm -hmm. and you just put out a new one come away from Russian hurry that was released a few months back. And I have so enjoyed listening to that. I was listening to it in my car on the way here. Mm. So can you talk a little bit about what prompted you to release this most recent record? What were some of the ideas behind that? So Come Away From Russian Hurry is the second album of mostly uh, of hymns. I haven't done like a worship album. I really like to write songs, um, but I also do a lot of hymn singing. You know, I, I think a, a lot of people have put a lot of great hymns albums out. For me, what caught my attention about making these songs was that a few years ago when I did move from Presbyterian world to Anglican world, I learned and was invited to sing a bunch of hymns 
that were super old that I had never heard before. Mm. So growing up, it is well, and, and this is my father's world, and holy, 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 and some of those were, like, hymns everybody knew, but to be the, the, the pastor or the priest at a church and a lot of the hymnody I didn't know, it yeah. was like, it was both alarming and it was also like a playground. It was like finding a new playground. So every Sunday at our church, we have organ-led, choir-led hymns. There's not like a worship leader. It's not guitar or piano. On Sunday nights it is because that, that's that's my expression. But so every Sunday, just hearing these choral arranged hymns and the ones that stuck to me are the, were the ones that I recorded. Well, and one of the things that you mentioned kind of entering into this new part of the church, Christian tradition and not knowing any of the songs, one of the things I will say about the record is I don't know any, I'd never heard any of the songs on it. Yeah. The one that I knew was Come Away From Russian Hurry, but I didn't actually know the, the words. You took a great song for us Baptists, Come Thou Fount, and put some new words to it. Right. Which that, I loved. I thought it was tremendous. So now that hymn is not one that Anglicans know because... Uh, that's a rather new text written by a Lutheran lady named uh, Marva Dawn, who's written a bunch of good books on worship, Royal Waste of Time and Reaching Out Without Dumbing Down. And so that text was printed in one of her books. And just I, I was looking for a tune that matched the text that I could re- that was readily available. So when I especially when I travel, I can do that and everyone knows how to sing it. But it has that. But the text is so beautiful. And hurry to the stillness of God's peace from our vain ambitions. Worry, come to Christ to find release. Come. I love this song enough that I have like a Come Thou Fount tattoo. So Ah. I immediately was really excited to hear that. Was there any sort of theological reason behind that or did it just match well? It's totally cool if it just matched. Logistically, as a worship leader, to be able to go anywhere and everywhere in in the crystal, whether I'm leading worship for Camps Crusade or the Chuck Colson Center or in the summers for Summit Ministries, like, no matter your background, you kind of know the tune "Come Thou Fount." So it was just a pragmatist sort of perspective on I'm not how do I get you. the most amount of people singing this beautiful text? You know, I'm not judging you at all because "Come Thou Fount" is the best. Yeah, well, and and just uh, for what it's worth, when I so I had to I had to write Marva Dawn a note and ask for her permission uh, to record this hymn. And I told her that I was going to be using it with this tune, the, the tune that we know for Come Thou Fount. And she said, I actually prefer it to be sung with this tune, but I'll allow you to. Yeah, so I was like, thank so you. You got a dispensation. I got a dispensation of grace from Martha Dawn. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh. So, so the, But the other songs were just ones that stuck to me. Like the word stuck to me um, or the, the tune, the melody stuck to me. Um, I'm thinking like Lift Up Your Heads, Ye Mighty Gates. Mm. I love that. I don't have this like operatic sort of uh, album concept, you know. It was just a bunch of Anglican hymns that stuck to me upon first hearing them over the course of about three or four years. Well, I can tell 
why they stuck with you because for me, I feel like I was really introduced to a lot of great hymns that I'd never heard before. Mm -hmm. And so it seems really obvious to me, like they stuck with you because they're great songs mm -hmm. and just songs that I'd never heard. And so thank you for introducing more people to some of the riches of the Anglican hymn, hymnity. So as we kind of wrap up our time together, you have just put out this, this new record of old hymns. And that seems to be increasingly common, especially in the last 10 years. So there's been a movement in evangelicalism to kind of retrieve the riches of hymns that were thrown away during the modern worship movement of the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Why do you think that people are going back to the hymns? And what do you think the hymns have to offer us? The first word that comes to mind is depth. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't, I don't see, pick that word to dig on contemporary worship music. Um, I think if, if anything, contemporary worship music is a bit of a product of just like radio and what is able to be conveyed to the masses over radio. And it's just, you know, I mean, hymns are kind of four stanzas that you repeat. That's not the most, it's not really entertaining unless you're singing it. So there's this almost like there's a pretty stark divide between congregationally focused Christian music and music that's more to be performed or creative. Almost, I don't want to say that it's not a good word. And yet, like if you're do if you're if you're reaching over octaves that a 70 year old man can't sing, and it was like, yeah, that's kind of more of a radio song, you know, mm -hmm. to to be enjoyed mm -hmm. on radio. But so depth, I think you can just get more depth. And you can get more singability. That's not probably a word, but um, I know what you corporate meant. involvement. Yeah, I can tell. I'm like something even about how I'm describing this doesn't feel comfortable because I'm making some really stark divides. But um, that's the that's what comes to mind. The depth of hymns, the way that you can tell a story. I mean, I think Keith Getty has talked about this or written about this somewhere. That there's just something about the layout of hymns that helps you tell the gospel story better than verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. That's awesome. Josh, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Appreciate Thank you it. for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource from the College and Career Ministry of Bay Life Church. Our goal is to equip our community to follow Christ faithfully and think carefully about the harder issues in the Christian faith. If you found this podcast helpful, please leave a review and subscribe. From College and Career, I'm Francis, and this is The Stone Table. Yeah, let's make sure everything's. Yeah, make sure it's, uh, I've got the Welby collar going. Oh. I don't know if you've seen Justin Welby. Uh, I haven't seen Archbishop. He always he has like a trouble with his collar. There's like his his collar has a Twitter account. It's called Wel <laughs> Welby's collar, oh. and so it does. I don't know why it does that, but oh. but uh, recently mine's been giving me some trouble.